Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, and you can also find it in your worship bulletin. Like Mark said, today we are in the final parable of this sermon series, and we're going to hear Jesus' parable of the talents. You know, sometimes we over-spiritualize God's Word to the point that it has, um, it, it doesn't really have an effect on parts of our lives. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the Christian church, and somewhere along the way, I got this idea, I kind of absorbed this idea, that God is somehow more concerned about the work that's done by pastors and missionaries than He is about the work of, say, a sheet metal worker or a speech writer. As if ministry work is more real or more consequential. But even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably still have categories in your mind for work that is more important than other work. More real. I think I experienced this a little bit the other night. Uh, I was at North Sea Tavern for their burger night, because they make an excellent burger. And I struck up a conversation with this electrician a few stools down. And I must have garbled my words, because he got this idea somewhere that I was a plumber. So, in a few minutes, he brings it up. He's like, and you're a plumber, right? And I had no idea what I might have said that gave him that impression. So, I told him, no, I'm actually a musician. I direct music at Grace Presbyterian Church. And the conversation just sort of halted right there. And I don't know if he thought maybe being a musician is not as real as being an electrician. Who knows? But it certainly was like he didn't know what we're going to talk about from that point. And I know for a fact that Mark has gotten some strange reactions over the years, say when he's been out at the public house. When it finally comes up that he's a pastor, people are kind of shocked sometimes. They find it confusing because he's, you know, fairly normal. And (laughs) he's a pretty jovial guy. People think that someone who's devoted his life to the things of God must be detached from normal human experience. Well, no matter if you were raised as a Christian or totally without religion, typically there's this artificial separation between the secular and the sacred, the mundane and the divine, to the point where they have little interaction with each other, no effect on each other. Well, that's an artificial separation that is alien to the words of Jesus that Matthew records here. In this passage, Jesus speaks in a parable that shows us that God cares about every sphere of life in which we find ourselves. In fact, it might be better to say that life exists all in one sphere. Listen as Jesus illuminates what God expects from his people as we live this life and await his return. Read with me Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word, and it accomplishes whatever he pleases. Let's ask for his blessing and an ability to hear and obey. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know what you desire and who you are, what kind of God you are. We ask for this time that we would be open to your word, that it would be made clear to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hannah Faye and I were visiting Indiana a couple weeks back. My dad was walking in a graduation ceremony, and then we took a few days to visit a church out there in Bloomington. And this church is connected to a media company. One of the pastors and a few of the members there publish a few different podcasts, two of which I listen to pretty regularly. And actually, that song, You Are My Shield, is also from the music ministry of that church. Well, I had had a couple of conversations with some pastors there, and so we visited And one night, a man named Ben came over for dinner to the house where we were staying. And he was a humble man. He does a bunch of different character voices on one of the podcasts. And we talked about music in a little bit. And we also learned about his interesting living arrangement. See, he manages a house where he and a few other men care for an older gentleman who has severe cerebral palsy. And they do almost everything for him. They meet his every need. It requires a round-the-clock schedule. And as I listened, I I wondered if I could do that work. And I told them, I was very honest, I think I'd be terrible at doing that. And I do think that, but really, I've had to ask myself, is it just that I wouldn't want to be inconvenienced? Do I lack the humility and the desire to serve and empty myself in the service of others? Am I too concerned with my comfort to give of myself? Am I a slave to self-love? If you go online, right now there are literally millions of posts on social media labeled with the hashtag self-love or self-care. So we know that concern for oneself is a widespread obsession. 
We're characterized in our natural state by selfishness, a desire for our own comfort and ease. We don't naturally take risks for the sake of others. But Jesus shows us in this parable that God expects us to use the full measure of what he's given us for the benefit of others and for his glory. He expects us to use the full measure of what he's given for the benefit of others and for his glory. We're going to consider four aspects of this passage and learn key principles along the way. We're going to look at the owner, the distribution, the requirement, and the reward. The owner, the distribution, the requirement, and the reward. First, the owner. The first thing we see is that anything we consider our possession or our competency is actually from God's riches that have been entrusted to us. Look at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the first thing that we can train ourselves in, based on Jesus' words, is to reckon everything we own as not actually belonging to us. We have nothing that we didn't receive. And what we've received is from God. Now what is it that we've received? Well, in the parable, the owner gives talents to his servants. And what is a talent? Well, it's a large sum of money, possibly as much as 20 years' worth of wages. So it's a huge sum of money. And what does it represent? Well, it represents any resource that God gives us with which to serve him by causing benefit to others and showing his glory. We are managers. We're stewards of God's riches. We manage on his behalf and according to his will. You know, over the years I've gotten complimented on my singing voice. But it's only in the past few years that I figured out the most fitting response is not a simple, oh, thanks. Or, thanks, it cost me thousands of dollars in training. (laughs) The proper response is, thanks, it was a gift. Whatever we have is literally something given by the true owner of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Next we see the distribution. It's God's prerogative that governs how much he entrusts to each of us. Because he's the owner, it's his right to determine which resources we get and the measure that each one receives. And it's not an equal distribution. Look at verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Our abilities are in accordance with what God has given us. And this is a comfort or an annoyance, depending on your perspective. So here's another way to be trained by this passage, by Jesus in this parable. Focus on what you have been given instead of what you have not. And encourage others to do the same. And encourage them in the use of their own gifts. You must not begrudge others for what they've received from God. Don't miss this part. If your outlook is primarily governed by ingratitude or fear or refusing to recognize how God has blessed you in many ways, followed by your resulting responsibility, then that outlook is wrong. It's not Christian. It's not what God intends. 
if we're embittered toward others because of the gifts and abilities and resources they have that we don't, then our ultimate bitterness is really toward God for not improving our station in the way that we see fit. Can you see the pride in that? If I covet someone's ability to make good academic arguments, or if I covet their writing ability, or their speaking ability, or the songwriting ability that they've honed, I'm like a whiny child complaining that his brother got a bigger piece of cake. We all have our own distinct allotment of talents, and we ought to take note of what they are, because God requires us to manage them well. And let's look at that requirement. God has expectations of his stewards. Again, because he's the owner, he gets to set the standard for how we use his resources. We're subservient to his desires, and thankfully he's told us what they are, what he requires. And what he requires is faithful fruitfulness. He wants us to multiply what he's given us. He desires gain. And we see this in how the master responds to the dealings and the reports of the two servants. Look again at verses 16 through 23. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. Skip to verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he repeats the same thing to the other servant who doubled his portion. They were regarded as good and faithful because they went, they went out and doubled the portion that they were given. Now, what is this gain? Is it monetary? Is it spiritual gain? Well, the answer is yes, and any other kind of gain that you can think of. See, God doesn't partition life into separate boxes. The distinction between the secular and the sacred in the life of God's children is foreign to Jesus' teaching here. In reality, all of life is spiritual. That is, all of life pertains to God. He cares about it all. It matters to Him. In the end, on the day of judgment, even everything that we've done between the times we punch in and punch out is going to matter. Our work at home and our work at work and even our homework matters. So what is this gain? Well, here's a helpful explanation from John Calvin. He writes, Now the gain which Christ mentions is general usefulness, which illustrates the glory of God. And a few sentences later he writes, That we may not become weary in doing well, Galatians 6.9, Christ declares that the labor of those who are faithfully employed in their calling will not be useless. End quote. One of the beautiful things to come out of the Reformation was the dignity and worth of all true work. There aren't hierarchies of important jobs and less important jobs. God cares about the faithfulness of each of us in our own calling. It's not just reformers like Calvin who put forth this idea, though. It also fits the context of this parable. You see, right after this parable, Matthew immediately records a scene of judgment 
that will take place when Jesus comes back in his glory. He will divide the nations like a shepherd splitting up the sheep and the goats. And the judgment on each person is passed according to the service that each one rendered to others. There's this wonderful book called Work, The Meaning of Your Life by a man named Lester DeCoster. And make sure you add it to your Amazon cart after this is done. In the book, he points out that during the sheep and goat judgment, as Jesus lists various activities that are done by the sheep and neglected by the goats, Jesus seems to cover nearly every kind of occupation that exists or could ever exist. Food service and bartending and hospitality and clothing retail and health care and financial services and counseling are all easily within the activities he describes, to name just a few. And we usually read that passage as referring exclusively to works of charity. But that seems to be a really narrow way of interpreting it. That's a way of interpreting it that's based on a low view of work, a low view of mutual exchange, which is faulty. Mutual exchange is a moral and spiritual matter. There are many passages in Proverbs and in Jesus' own teachings about how we deal with others that teach us that God has ordained charity and work and exchange. And so it is the case here in this parable as well. This is the gain of general usefulness. And here's an implication that you might not expect. If there's no distinction between so-called secular parts of life and sacred parts of life, then if, that, if that's an artificial split, then it also means that evangelism is not some special level of Christian living, for example. It's not something just for pastors and missionaries. We are to shine as lights in the world, in whichever part of the world we occupy. See, there are certain parts of our calling that are common to all Christians, to all children of God. We're all called to live holy lives as God's children and to make disciples as Jesus commanded. We go about our everyday business conducting ourselves as children of light, as the salt of the earth with a very distinct flavor compared to what's around us. Does that describe you? Or do you fit in at work? Do you lie and cheat? like the worst of them? Do you slander others to get ahead? Or are you living as a child of God? Do you also want to see others come to know the same Savior that's transforming you? Ask yourself, am I living distinctly as one who knows God? And do I care that others come to know Him? That's part of our faithful fruitfulness, multiplying God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, it's still in effect. God wants children for his own. Children of God have a desire to work for the good of others here in this world and in the world to come. So we've seen God's requirement of faithful fruitfulness. But before we get to the reward part, what happens if God's requirement is not met? Well, we can see from the wicked and slothful servant that fear and laziness and avoiding risk for others lead to damnation. That outer darkness that's described in verse 30, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That signifies eternal regret 
Is it really that serious? Look at verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, down to verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. Will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What we can see is that our misuse of God's gifts is a way of casting judgment on him. Look at the wicked servant. He actually impugns his master's very motives in distributing these talents. He flips things around and accuses his master of laziness. We dare not twist God's generosity and desire for good gain by being malcontents by letting ingratitude fester in our hearts, by being covetous, by looking to our own interests, by seeking ease and comfort without a care for anyone else. But that's how we are naturally. So what is to be done? If we're honest with ourselves before God and His Word here in this passage, we, when we're left to our own devices, we are this wicked servant. It's only through Jesus that we can get new desires from a new heart, A heart that's made of flesh instead of stone. That cares for others. Jesus was God's ultimate good and faithful servant. He made the best use of what God had given him to do. He died to take away God's wrath for our selfishness and our laziness and the way that we look out for our own interests. And through faith we trust in him and God gives us Christ's righteousness. He forgives us of all those things. He accepts us. You see, this passage does not mean that every hard worker is a child of God. It doesn't mean that we can earn our righteousness or God's acceptance through working for it. There's a way of working that is born of a desire to get, and there's a way of working that is born of a desire to give. And there are diligent, hard-working people on both sides. What matters is, Are we part of God's kingdom? Are we working to see that kingdom increase? The servants that God regards as good and faithful are those who have become his children through faith in Christ and are changed into generous people as he is generous. God does not save us by works, but he saves us for works. Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We're saved in order to do good works, to work from a motivation of love and care for others and love of God. So is your life marked by the giving of yourself to others? Do you cultivate your usefulness so that it flows to others in love and service? 
If not, then that is evidence that you're not yet a child of God. But there's hope, especially if you want to be one of his children that is marked by love and generosity. You can put your faith in Jesus' perfect life and death for you today. So let's look now at the reward for those who are good and faithful servants. This passage has illustrated what Jesus expects of his servants until he returns. He expects us to be faithful and fruitful. Your management of the life he's given you will determine your reward in the age to come. And what is that reward? Well, it's actually more to manage and more to rule, more to oversee. Look at verses 21 and 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, they were given different allotments, five talents and two talents, but they were given the same commendation. And now each one will be entrusted with even more. The point is to be faithful with what God has given you. You can't answer for anyone else. And we also see heaven is not going to be a place to just exist and sing. There will still be lots of meaning and purpose. And according to this passage and others, much of that meaning and purpose will continue to derive from our work, what God gives us to do in the age to come from our God-given responsibilities. We're going to have much joy. The commentator R.T. France asks, Is it reading too much into the parable to envisage heaven as a state not of indolent pleasure, but of active cooperation with the purpose of God, as well as enjoyment of his favor? End quote. God's faithful and generous children are going to enter into the joy of their master. And their joy is going to be full and complete because it won't any longer be sullied by these competing desires of selfishness and generosity fighting inside of them. Every Christian knows that struggle. That inner conflict is going to be gone once our master returns from his journey. So what will the master find you doing? Have you been transformed through faith in Christ? What will be his verdict on the way you have spent your life? Are you motivated by love? Or are you squandering what he's given? Are you investing it for the benefit of others and for his glory and gain? Everything we have is of God and is for the increase of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, help us to take stock of our own life, what we've been given, and whether we've been transformed into people who want to be generous and love others and bring glory to you. Help us to cultivate our gifts, cultivate all the talents that you've entrusted us with, that we might be servants of others and you. In Jesus' name, amen.